Can Christians believe in evolution? Is evolution compatible with the Bible? What about some of the reactions we've seen in corners of the Christian family to the coronavirus and to vaccines? All this and more with our special guest, Dr. Dennis Venema. Christine, can you tell us a little bit about Dennis? Absolutely. Dr. Dennis Venema is a professor of biology at Trinity Western University. He did his undergraduate and PhD work at the University of British Columbia. He's a regular speaker at BioLogos, and he is one of the authors of the book, Adam and the Genome. Thank you for joining us today, Dennis Venema. From your perspective as a professor at a Christian university, what are the pressing conversations we should be having with science-minded students related to human origins? I, I see it frequently in my classes. Um, I teach evolution here. I teach at Trinity Western University, which is an evangelical Christian university here in Canada. And I have the great privilege of teaching evolution here to students that come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And some students just light up when they get to learn about evolution because it's such a cool science. And I can see that they're just so excited about it because they haven't, they don't know much about it and they want to learn more. Other students come into the class and it's an optional class, so they don't have to be there, but some students come there and they're a bit apprehensive. They've learned that, you know, evolution is a bad thing. They've learned that evolution is an explanation, you know, that atheists came up with to try to convince themselves that God wasn't involved in their creation or something like that. Or they've been taught that, you know, the evolution evidence for evolution is very shaky. And I get, and they've also been told that, you know, you can't be, you can't be a Christian if you believe in evolution or you accept evolution, that these are somehow in conflict with each other. So I end up with this real mix of students in the class and it can be very challenging for some students. So some students are experiencing just the joy of learning and they're not theologically threatened by it. Other students are profoundly theologically threatened by it and they don't know how to put this together. Sometimes it's, it's a case where, say, a student who's been in the class for a couple of uh, months and then they've actually learned some of the evidence for evolution. They've learned that the apologetics arguments that they've been taught up, up to that point don't, don't hold up in the light of the evidence. And then it's time to go back home for Thanksgiving and, oh, my goodness, what am I going to tell mom and dad, right? And maybe mom and dad are worried about, you know, having sent them off to university that they might lose their faith or something like that. And these students end up in this awful place where they can see where the evidence leads, they can see what the evidence supports, and they're coming from a faith community that tells them that they can't accept these things. So then they end up in this choice and this, this, they have to make this decision, you know, do I continue to, to, to learn about something that seems very well scientifically supported? But if I continue to learn about that, is that going to be a threat to my faith? And you know, what, what, sort of pushback might I get from my faith community. So we need to do a better job of preparing our students, our young people in churches um, to encounter this evidence. And one of the things I've noticed that is very, very helpful for students is even if, say, their own family might be anti-evolutionary, 
but maybe somebody in their church and they, they say, oh, you know, I know somebody in my church who thinks that evolution and faith can go together and that you don't have to choose between those two things. Or I heard my pastor preach once that, and he, you know, suggested that maybe science and faith can go together in some way. Any kind of inkling in their background that allows for that sort of inf uh, flexibility or the willingness to investigate, anything like that is very, very beneficial to a student as they try to encounter or as they go through this encounter with, with evolution. And I've seen students do it very well, and I've also seen students struggle very, very significantly with it because they come from a faith community that is very rigid and says, no, only six to eight literal creation is the only option for a Christian. And those students do, you know, they struggle. So, so it's a pastoral issue. It's a question of what we want to add on to the gospel. Do we want to add on to the gospel that you have to have a certain take on science, especially when the evidence is so convincing? Dennis, on that same subject, with the kids and the experience that you've had with them, is the struggle uh, basically one over the science, or is it one over what they've been taught about how the Bible works? It's usually a mix of both, though, but primarily the difficulties are theological. They've been taught that they can't accept this evidence because it's, it's against God in some way. And that was my own experience too growing up. I grew up in an in a evangelical setting. Um, Darwin was a bad word, you know, evolution was a bad word. So I get that. But then there's also all the misconceptions that they have about evolution because typically they've, their only exposure to evolution has been from anti-evolutionary apologetics. So typically, even just from a science pedagogical perspective, there's a lot of undoing that needs to happen there so that they can understand what the actual science of evolution says and then to learn what that's all about. So it's kind of a mix. There's the theological baggage, and then there's also the apologetics baggage that hasn't accurately represented what the science actually is. So for those interested in exploring the theological ideas related to human origins, in addition to this book, what would you recommend for theological pursuits for students? You know, I think back on my own experience when I was in university and there wasn't really a lot out there. Um, but now we have a lot of good resources. Um, you know, you could pick up Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, you know, excellent book, uh, very personal narrative of his own encounter, you know, both with evolution and also with, with faith, with Christianity. Um, the Harsma's book, uh, Origins, is an excellent resource as well. So that's authored by Lauren and Deb Harsma. Deb Harsma is the current uh, president of Biologos. And she's written, she and her husband have written that book and is an excellent introduction. Um, I would also recommend John Walton's books, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1 and The Lost World of Adam and Eve would be a great uh, place to start as well to try to get an understanding of what the setting and culture and audience of the Genesis narratives, what that's, you know, what that is directed to. That would be excellent as well. And yeah, Adam in the genome, of course. <laughs> I really like how Scott, in the second half, half of the book, my co-author, Scott McKnight, um, really works through, um, okay, where is Paul drawing on these ideas of Adam? Because Adam's kind of been a no-show for a long time um, since the Genesis narratives. And Adam is very interesting to the Jews of the intertestamental period. So when Paul picks up Adam and is using Adam in Romans 5, for example, he's doing that 
from his situated place where there's been intertestamental Judaism talking about those issues. And Paul is in that stream, and Scott has a lot of interesting things to say about that. So, yeah, highly recommended, of course. Your book was... Yeah, your book was a watershed moment for me, uh, because I think one of the first things that happens when when you come to the conclusion that no, evolution isn't what we were taught growing up, uh, it's it's not a threat in that way. And it, it isn't it, it isn't actually saying what we were told it's saying. I, I, I see many people still trying to say that evolution has something to say about first cause or or the origin of the universe and not the origin of the species. And a lot of times apologists will say, you know, well, evolution doesn't have an answer for that. Um, but when you arrive at a place where, where you grow comfortable or uncomfortable, I, w I was one of the most reluctant converts <laughs> to accepting evolution because I was, um, as far as origins go, I was one of those Christians who fell down the stairs and hit my head on every step. I was <laughs> young earth creation and then I was gap theory. And then I was kind of reasons to believe with Hugh Ross and intelligent design came out and I had a little bit of that. And um, it wasn't until Francis Collins book, The Language of God, that I grew uncomfortable with my certainty. And I followed it up with origins and I was knocked out at that point. And my, my first battle then was what to make of Adam. And, yeah. and somebody recommended your book, Adam and the Genome. And I remember your co-author writing an article about it saying how he had read an article from you about it and how he was uncomfortable and he said uh-oh we're going to have to rethink this so I do think that's one of the major obstacles that uh, Christians encounter when they finally do accept evolution is, is what to do with right. Adam and not really what to do with Adam in Genesis but what to do with Adam as you suggest in Jesus and Paul. And so, yeah, that book is, is, is outstanding. But you mentioned your background and how you have grown. And can you explain to us, at one point, you were pretty comfortable in, with intelligent design. And, and that was when you were still, were, were you going for your doctorate at that time? Yeah, I was a brand new graduate student. I had just started my PhD in cell biology and genetics. Yeah, and I, I became aware of the intelligent design movement around that time. And I read uh, a book by Michael Behe called Darwin's Black Box, and I thought it amazing. It's like, oh, of course, there's all this stuff that's so complex. There's no way that natural processes could produce them. We see irreducible complexity. Yeah, it's just a no-brainer, obviously. This is, this is the way to go. And I sort of camped there for a while. I didn't do a lot of interaction with origins issues while I was doing my PhD. I kind of just shelved it, but I was still working from that basic assumption that, you know, evolution is something that's anti-Christian and ID seemed a really good place to kind of hang my hat during that time. Then, so I stayed that way through my PhD, graduated, got the job here at Trinity Western, taught from an ID perspective for a couple of years here at Trinity. and. Then I was asked to do, um, to help rewrite an article, a book chapter actually, about biology and Christianity. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to have anything to intel intelligent to say on this, I better do a whole bunch of reading. And it was during the process of that uh, research for that article that I changed my views. But I actually started with intelligent design again at that point. 
Uh, Behe had a new book out at that point called The Edge of Evolution, and I thought this would be a fantastic spot for me to sort of pick up again with ID because I was thinking I was going to write the paper from an ID perspective. And I really wish I could have had uh, a video camera sitting here in this office right here at this desk reading the opening chapter of Edge of Evolution, and I can remember myself just kind of thinking, what on earth am I reading? So I have two experiences of reading intelligent design material. I, my first experience was reading it um, as basically a, a brand new graduate student. So I had my bachelor's in biology. Sounded great, sounded convincing. And then I had the experience of reading the same author, a different book, but the same author, um, after I had completed my PhD and I had you know, taught for a couple of years. Um, so I was a, you know, a PhD biologist at this point. And I was amazed at the, the difference that that made. I, was, I can remember, you know, sort of every so often as I'm reading through the book, kind of like exclaiming out loud just that, you know, this, this was very poor argumentation and that this wasn't credible. And I can remember I got at, to a certain point and I'd put the book down. It's just like I can't go any further at this point. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm not ID, because if that's ID, my goodness, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold up. So the next article or the next thing on the reading stack was um, the nature paper that discusses the human genome as it's compared to the chimpanzee genome, because the chimpanzee genome had recently been sequenced. So I'm like, okay, I'll read this next. And reading that paper, I was just blown away by the difference with what I was reading from ID compared to reading genuine science. And I read, through, I read through that paper and I was like, wow, there is no reasonable way to claim that humans and chimpanzees do not share a common ancestor. So I, I, at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm not ID. I don't know what I am. But and, I mean, I knew about Francis Collins at that point. His book was farther down the reading stack. So, but even in that day, I lost, you know, lost my faith in ID, as it were, even before I decided to, you know, to sort of build something else. I knew that ID wasn't going to work for me anymore because of the poor argumentation I was seeing. I'm going to jump in one more and then I'm going to come back to you, Christine. But De Dennis, you said you lost your faith in ID. How <laughs> many Christians do you know go through the same process you did and actually end up losing their faith? Uh, in, in their deconstruction and what would you recommend maybe for parents who are listening or for for those college students who are listening who think that the only alternative is well this I thought this was true it's not so I guess I must be an agnostic or an atheist yeah a big and this sort of gets back to what I was saying about what students that I have that struggle with these issues if you've been raised in an, in an environment that repeatedly tells you you can either accept the Bible or evolution, but that they're mutually incompatible. Well, then what, what happens when you gain scientific expertise and you see the evidence for evolution firsthand from that position of being able to understand it, it forces students into this awful choice. So what's needed is earlier, I mean, you know, a parent nowadays, we, you know, you can't go back in time, but, you know, for parents, say, if your kids are younger right now, begin to talk to them about how there's a range of views that some Christians think evolution is okay. They don't see it as a threat to their faith. They see it as God's intended mechanism for bringing about biodiversity. You know, there's a long conversation within Christianity about Genesis and how Genesis should be interpreted. 
the literal interpretation of Genesis that's popular now in certain circles is a relatively recent innovation. If you go back to the patristic period, for example, you won't find that kind of literal interpretation. You know, all of those sorts of things are very helpful for students when they're trying to unpack, you know, as they're processing. But for some students, it really is too much of a shift. They have built so much of their faith on this foundation of a particular view of biblical inerrancy, a particular particular interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis, that they just they just can't see how these things go together. It's just too foreign to them. So yeah, you know, say for a parent who has a child who's walked away from the faith, like what would you do now? Well, maybe do some reading yourself, find out about Christians who accept evolution, who think science is, you know, good science is important, but also think that good biblical interpretation is important. Do some reading yourself and then maybe reach out to your child and say, you know, I've been doing some reading, I've changed my views a bit, you might find this helpful. I've, I've seen that occur with some parents in the past, but I've also seen that some some kids at that point, you know, adult children, they're like, yeah, no, mom, dad, I'm, I'm done with it, it doesn't work for me anymore. A part of that too is the unfortunate sort of culture situatedness of Christianity, especially as I, in the States. Uh, Canada has this too, to a certain degree, but we don't tend to parcel issues together in the same way. So we don't think you have to vote a certain way if you're a Christian. We don't think you have to have, you know, certain views on, say, firearms rights if you're a Christian, those kind of things. So it can sometimes be harder for someone to unpackage Jesus from all of those other things that tend to get added on. All right, so in our current pandemic crisis, how has some of the anti-scientist, anti-science views of certain segments of the Christian church fed conspiracy ideas or other negative consequences? Yeah, it kind of seems to be a bit of a package. If you, if you already think that scientists are attempting to deceive Christians by having you know this sort of masquerade and hiding evidence for creation and propping up evolution which is this you know unsupported idea you know if that's the narrative that you think is true about scientists then it's not much of a stretch to go beyond that and say oh and then they're also hiding stuff about covid or they're trying to you know get me microchipped or whatever so it's kind of an unfortunate i mean i made a comment on facebook a while ago that I think you might have seen where I said something to the effect of, you know, up until this point, you know, science denial among Christians hasn't really, you know, it hasn't been life-threatening. And now we're in a situation where it actually could be life-threatening. You know, if a large number of Christians don't do social distancing or don't take appropriate precautions, then more people will be infected and a certain number of those people will die. I did have an appropriate pushback by somebody um, whom I respect on Facebook who said, you know, Christian attitudes to climate change also have deadly consequences. It's just that, you know, it's just at a slower scale, right? But, and you know, so fair point at that point there too. But in the short term, we haven't before seen this kind of impact where the anti-science sentiment of the church in general suddenly has like real world right now immediate impact on maybe who in your congregation might live or die because of your willingness to, to isolate or to take this seriously. So yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate um, example of how anti-science behavior 
can have really negative consequences, especially when as Christians we're called to be um, the people who are willing to sacrifice the most for the, for others. We're supposed to put others before ourselves. We're supposed to love our neighbors. And understanding and promoting good health practices around COVID is part of loving your neighbor. So it's, it's a, it's, you know, Christians, if anything, we should be the ones who are known for doing this more so, you know, you know, we should be an example in our willingness to, to lay down our rights for the betterment of other people. So what do you think about the potential of a vaccine? How soon do you think that that can be ready? Um, do you see many Christians pushing back on a vaccine for some of those same anti-science reasons? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, Francis Collins, if you follow Francis Collins on his blog, which I would recommend that you do, um, he's not hard to find. He's the director of the National Institutes of Health uh, for you guys down there in the States. And it's wonderful that we have a man of, of integrity and solid faith and compassion in such a position of influence um, and someone of, of you know deep conviction. So he has an article up Oh, a couple, like a week ago or so now that sort of lays out all the different avenues and all the different approaches that are being uh, tried for a COVID vaccine. We are going to have this vaccine sooner than probably any other vaccine in history. One of the reasons for that is that because we're trying so many different uh, approaches to make a vaccine, but like Francis talks about in his article, we're also ramping up production for all of them before we have evidence that any one of them might be the best one, the most you know useful one. So the idea is is that not all they're not all going to go into production, but we're going to do the groundwork beforehand, such that any one of them that does show good benefit could be put into production very very quickly. We're not usually the usual process is you kind of go through clinical trials, you find one that's useful, and then you begin the scale up to try to produce it at a large number at a large amount, and we're bypassing that. So that is going to greatly reduce the amount of time. We've also seen some good evidence in the last few weeks that people who have been infected with COVID have a, a good immune response to it. And that's the same sort of immune response that a vaccine would be intending to elicit. So that's good news. We've also seen um, evidence that um, some individuals may have some T cells that have an ability to recognize uh, COVID even if someone hasn't been exposed to COVID before. So perhaps from a related coronavirus or something like that. Now, that also probably explains why the disease has a different impact on different people. But anyway, all of that is, to, is good. These are good signs to suggest that an immune system can have a good, healthy response, a good, robust response to this virus, and therefore probably also to a vaccine. So I'm hopeful and we'll probably have a useful vaccine more quickly than we have for many other things, just because we're ramping this up and we're trying to do it so quickly. Unfortunately, we're also already seeing um, people in the States primarily who are, who are already campaigning and basically saying, even if a vaccine is available, there's no way I'm gonna to take one. Another thing to think about there is that vaccines are like, are one of the best public health innovations that humans have ever thought of. And when I take a vaccine, even if I say I'm not in a very high risk category, maybe I'm in a low risk category for COVID. If I can take that vaccine 
I am doing I, part of the reason why I'm doing so is for is because of my love of others for my love for neighbor. There are some people who can't be vaccinated. There are some people who have weakened immune systems. And if I take the vaccine and, lar and large numbers of people take the vaccine, then what that does is it helps create that herd immunity that protects the people who aren't able to be vaccinated. So that is something that Christians should feel motivated to do for the good of others as well, especially when it's such a safe, safe pr uh, procedure. Like the, the risk of complications with vaccines is incredibly, incredibly low. It's one of the best public health measures that we've ever come up with. Doctor, um, along the lines of Christine's last question to you about the vaccine, and, and sometimes Christians respond in a way that you just mentioned, that, that they think it's part of uh, some kind of new world order or some, some kind of satanic plot to, to you know, organize the end times. When you're sitting with friends who are in your scientific community but don't share your faith, and they look at the worst, uh, or I, how, how do I put this nicely? They look at the, the kid's table at the wedding reception of Christianity, and, and they look at that and they say, you know, how can you, who are, you, who, who are so smart in other areas, accept that? You know, we talked about how some people have a caricature of evolution, but what about those who have this caricature of Christianity and they could point to Westboro Baptist Church or they could point to Ken Ham and Young Earth Creationists or Al Mohler and, and they say, how can you be part of that? What's your best response for them? It can be challenging for sure. Like say with colleagues that I have who are not believers, you know, other academics that I know. You try to say, you know, hey, Jesus is this amazing person. You should have a look at what he has to say. You should you should have a look at this amazing life that he offers and how you can be most fully human when you follow, you know, the way of Jesus. And then, you know, that conversation ensues. It's like, well, how can you, as somebody who's, you know, an academic and who has training, how can you buy into all this nonsense that's a part of Christianity? And then you have to say, well, actually, no, that's not part of Christianity. Christianity has a long tradition of um, of good thinking, good philosophy, good theology. There's a long tradition of an appreciation of science. And yes, there's a there's sort of a range of expression of Christianity in the present day. But no, you don't have to reject evolution if you want to be, you know, if you want to check out who Jesus is. You know, you don't have to think that Bill Gates is going to microchip you with a vaccine if you want to check out who Jesus is. And, you know, the, the yeah, it is a challenge, though, right? Because you have to do that separating out. And we shouldn't really have to do that separating out. It shouldn't be a package that all of these things come together, right? And there, I mean, of course, I've met many, many Christians in the United States who are pulling their hair out because of what they're seeing. And they don't package these things together. And so, you know, I have, I have, you know, you know, a lot of empathy for that. So yeah, it's this question of, you know, do we want to put barriers in place to the gospel? Do we want to say, okay, here are things that you should think before you can look at the claims of Jesus and ask serious questions about who he, who he is and what he accomplished? You know, anything that we can do to take away needless barriers is a good thing. And having 
Now, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm so thankful that Biologos got off the ground with Francis Collins. It was one of the first large-scale attempts to try to communicate to evangelical Christians that you can have solid science and, you know, genuine orthodox evangelical faith and these things can go together. You don't have to be, you know, a wishy-washy liberal Christian in order to, you know, to put evolution together. It doesn't mean that you're giving up on taking the Bible seriously and that sort of thing. So insofar that as that message has gotten out, I'm grateful for it. And it's been very useful for me, even in my own personal discussions with academics who aren't believers, to be able to say, look, you know, okay, look at Francis Collins, you know, look at Biologos, look at these resources and these Christians who are trying to work towards good science education within their own communities. And then that can take away some of those barriers to, to those people who could then say, oh, yeah, you know, that's good, good work that's being done there. And then that might lead to, a, to an opportunity to say, okay, well, now that we've kind of cleared away those barriers, now, you know, let's, let's have a conversation about faith. Let's have a conversation about who Jesus is. And we don't need to get lost in the weeds of, oh, yeah, you know, Christians reject science. So I'm really pleased that that has been there over the last you know, number of years. And I hope that that continues to grow. Although, unfortunately, it seems like we're just getting increased polarization where we're having, you know, some Christians who are good with that sort of approach and then, a lot, you know, other Christians who are very much not okay with that approach. So we're sort of seeing that sort of fork in the road. So why do you think so many apologists take an anti-evolution mm -hmm. position? If, if it should be something that we're trying to reduce the barriers and reduce um, the ability for people to come to Christ, uh, why, why is that such a popular position among apologists? Maybe, I don't know, like me, growing up as an evangelical, it was just kind of a given that evolution was bad and that it was so if you kind of grow up in that environment and you haven't taken the time to really look into the evidence for evolution or maybe like I mean I had the advantage of having a PhD in biology right so I could just read the stuff make my own mind up and it was very plain but if you don't have that ability and if you've sort of been raised in this environment where evolution is always bad and you've constantly been taught that it's tied to your faith you know to reject it then I can see that, you know, as an apologist, if you're trying to argue for Christianity, that it would be very natural to try to put those things together. You know, it's interesting, though, like Christians are totally OK with many, you know, with with scientific explanations for all sorts of things. We're not troubled by a scientific explanation of early human development. Right. You know, even in light of the psalm that says that God knit us together in our mother's womb, right? We don't see a conflict between that and the science. We don't see a problem with science explaining how our solar system moves and how gravity works and that sort of thing. We, you know, so in that sense, you know, we're theistic embryologists and we're, you know, theistic gravitationists in that sense, right? We don't see this dichotomy between a natural mechanism that God has put in place and the you know if we we don't see there's the problem with understanding something scientifically and then having some notion that that takes god out of the equation but for some reason for biology a lot of people do have that hang up they think oh if we explain this in terms of a scientific mechanism that that somehow removes god from what's going on here but 
we don't we don't buy that logic for many other areas of science. So why should we buy it for evolution? Why, if the if, you know, if the evidence is as compelling as it is for evolution, why would we want to fight against that when it may well be the mechanism that God chose to bring about biodiversity? So, you know, at that point, it probably goes back to how we've understood the Bible, how we've been raised to think about the Bible and our particular faith tradition, and then a feeling like that, that we're losing something if we go away from that sort of literal interpretation of Scripture. But, you know, the idea that we would have a natural read on a document that's written to an ancient Jewish audience and that, you know, that it would read straight and read naturally to us at this in time in our scientific culture, I mean, you would have to convince me that that was going to be an appropriate read. It shouldn't be the default read, right? It, you should be offering a good reason why I should be looking at Genesis that way, as opposed to taking it in its context and its setting, such that we can understand what God was intending to communicate to the original audience, and then going with that, as opposed to sort of putting our scientific uh, lens and worldview on top of it. We have a pretty big segment of homeschoolers at our church, and my experience is they start when the kids are little and they pick curriculum that's Christian because if they're going to keep the kids home, let's teach them about God too. And I think their motive is really good. Um, and they pick curriculum that maybe is easy to teach or has pretty pictures or good phonics because the kids are little. But along with that comes the younger creation perspective. So by the time they're looking at high school curriculum, they're not even looking for integration. They're not even looking at, they're already sold on the Young Earth piece. Actually, I have a mix of both secular um, school and um, Christian schooling um, in my K-12. And early on, we I did, um, in a Christian school setting, I did Young Earth Creationist materials. And you know what? It, I mean, it was part of that whole culture of, yeah, evolution is bad kind of thing. But on the other hand, I don't really remember sort of buying into it very deeply as well. So, you know, if you've been using young earth creationist materials up until this point, you know, that's fine now. You know, and when kids are really small, right, they have sort of very black and white thinking. They're not really thinking about, you know, those bigger issues necessarily. But, you know, as they're getting, you know, th towards the end of elementary school and, and becoming young adults, that's the time when you want to start talking about this broader conversation. So even if, say, you're using Young Earth Creationist materials, maybe that's the time, to, and maybe you kind of feel like you have to stick with it because that's the curriculum that you're invested in or whatever. There's still an opportunity to kind of have those conversations with your kid and say, okay, this is one Christian perspective. Let's compare it with some of the other Christian perspectives that are out there. Maybe we could get another book alongside, like maybe so like somebody in high school could easily read uh, the Origins book by the Harzmas. Maybe that could go alongside their curriculum, and now there's a conversation of, okay, some Christians think this way, other Christians think this way. Students in my classes who have had that kind of approach, they typically do fine when they're encountering evolution. I mean, they're coming from a family background that's already saying it's okay to have the conversation, so that's huge. But just that ability for them to look at this new evidence and also know that, oh, there's a range of Christian responses to this. It's not just, oh, evolution and atheism versus young earth creationism and Christianity, right? So. Right. So maybe it's more targeting the parents to help the parents be able to offer a range of perspectives to their kids. Yeah. yeah. And just to underscore that a range is acceptable. It's okay. Yeah. Um, 
a number of years ago, my, my pastor at my church, I say I shared this through BioLogos a while back. Um, a pa my pastor at my church preached a sermon talking about biblical authority and talking about the sort of range of different Christians opinion of different Christian opinions on things. And in that sermon, he says, you know, and, and evolutionary creation is a faithful option for Christians. You know, old earth creation, a faithful option, young earth creation, a faithful option. The basic idea is that the, to present to our church that there's a range of acceptable views and that there are sort of different levels, like, you know, that God is creator is like not a negotiable point, right? That, that, that that's something every Christian believes and that's a, a core issue. But then there's other issues that aren't as close to the core. There's things like, okay, well, how did God create? And then there's a range of different views on that. And that's not the same sort of absolute core issue that God being creator is. So those kind of conversations between parents and their homeschooled kids, I think, would be very valuable. Um, from your perspective, with new students coming in and when you talk to people at church or um, colleagues, what have you found to be most misunderstood about evolution? Mm. There's actually, in the textbook I use, there's an, a section in the first chapter that has like something like 14 different common misunderstandings misconceptions about evolution um even even aside from the christian sort of misinformation apologetic stuff that students come with baggage there's also just a lot of misunderstanding about how, how evolution works in general even for people that don't have sort of a theological dog in the fight as an aside maybe i'll just pump briefly i did a long series of articles for biologos a number of years ago uh, called Evolution Basics, and that's intended just to be sort of like an entry 101 course on evolution. So a lot of the misconceptions are handled there. It'd be a good place for people to start if they wanted to get a better understanding. One of the, maybe I'll pick like, you know, one we've already sort of spoken to that, you know, evolution and faith are somehow at odds. I, th I think we've kind of shown that that's a false dichotomy. Another major one that's more sort of purely biological, though, is the tendency for people to think that evolution is a ladder of progression that you know everything is going to evolve to us you know I, I made a joke with somebody on facebook the other day it's like yeah they think like everything is going to become human eventually because that's the end point of evolution for everything right to become like us evolution is not a progression of uh, like a ladder like progression you actually see this in some of the answers that frank turek is giving in that uh, video that you um that you shared with me you know, where he's talking about the, the um, Lenski experiment with E. coli. And he says, yeah, you know, we, they've had so many years of replicating these E. coli and they're still E. coli. It's like, oh, well, that's ladder like thinking then, you know, the, the assumption that, oh, of course, stuff is going to become different because that's, you know, they're, you know, of course, bacteria are going to become protists and then mammals or whatever. But that's a misunderstanding. Evolution is not like that. Evolution is a branching tree. It's not this ladder of progression. So it's not like, you know, it's, and it takes a while to work through that, even in an evolution class to sort of, to discuss what that means. It means that species that we see in the fossil record are not necessarily, com you know, ancestors, direct ancestors of things we see in the present day. They would be what's called a stem species rather than a crown group species. Uh, and you could talk, you can see info about that in that evolution basics series that I wrote. So that's one of those major, major misconceptions that comes up over and over again. 
Um, why do scientists conclude that there were never less than 10,000 humans? It's basically as, it's as simple as looking at the amount of genetic diversity that we have in present day humans, in present day um, individuals. And the, the often bandied about 10,000 figure, that's what we have evidence for. When we do these various tests based on present day genetic diversity, the answer that we get back from all of these different methods is about 10,000. So that is a, an effect, what's called an effective population size. That's the, the, the population number that best, explain, best explains the genetic diversity that we see in the present. Now that might be different than census size. Census size is like the actual head count of people who were around at a given time. Census size is usually actually quite a bit larger than um, effective population size, although sometimes it can be smaller as well. So that 10,000 figure is what we have evidence for. When we do these different methods and we look back over our evolutionary history, we see about that number as kind of the minimum. Now that's had some pushback lately from certain um, angles. Some people have said, okay, Dennis, these are long-term averages that are about 10,000. What if there was this really brief uh, bottleneck event that suddenly went down to two in just a single generation? And then after that instantaneous bottleneck, we had this amazing exponential growth from that point. So there's been some pushback for that. Uh, those kind, like if that kind of event took place, even with an extreme event like that, we can be confident that it didn't happen in the last 500,000 years. And that's like seriously torture testing the models. And even with that kind of torture testing, we're, we're confident that in the last 500,000 years, something like that hasn't happened. So what that's actually led some apologists to do is to say, oh, okay, we'll just move Adam and Eve back to 500,000 years ago or more. So that's not Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens doesn't exist on the planet at that point. So we'd be looking at like a Homo erectus or maybe Homo heidelbergensis or something like that. But then you also have to propose some sort of mechanism by which that sort of event would have taken place. And we haven't seen any reasonable mechanism proposed because there's hominins all over the place at that point. Like Homo erectus, for example, is widespread over Africa and Asia at that point. So then how do you get this instantaneous bottleneck and then this exponential growth after the fact? So while there's been some pushback on that, um, like somebody who's a biologist, who's a, you know, a, like a non-Christian biologist kind of looking at this conversation, kind of going, wow, do Christians really have to stretch and, and sort of, and really kind of propose these kind of scenarios in order to have confidence in their scriptures like to me it's kind of like yeah you know i just i just don't see the value in it but i recognize that some other christians think that that might be a good route to try to go down but keep in mind we don't have any positive evidence that anything like this ever took place that there was ever a reduction down to two basically this is sort of the error bar where the error bar is right now okay the error bar is at five hundred thousand years ago oh let's put adam at five hundred thousand years ago it's like, eh, what happens in five, ten, you know, two years when other techniques come along or current techniques are refined to a point where that error bar moves again, right? And then, of course, there's the other question of, you know, 500,000 years ago looks nothing like the early chapters of Genesis, not even close, right? The early chapters of Genesis have animal agriculture, they have metallurgy, they have cities being built, right? That looks like 
you know, 6,000 years ago. That does not look like 500,000 years ago, where like stone tools are like kind of the only thing that humans have worked out at that point. So, yeah, I'm, I don't, I, again, I don't quite see the value there, but, you know, for some people having sole genetic progenitorship from Adam and Eve seems to be very important. So that's why we're kind of seeing these approaches to try to push Adam back to 500,000 years ago or perhaps before. That's Thank a you. form of concordism, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. A, a, a long time ago, I wrote a paper for the ASA journal and I talked about something called ratcheting concordism. And basically when you get bumped out of what you thought you could hold on to, and then you kind of bump over a couple of poles on the ratchet and then you're like, oh, you lock in here and say, okay, I'll hold the fort here. Right. I mean, at that point, you know, if Adam's, you know, 500,000 years ago and not homo sapiens, um, and that's what we're doing to save a certain read of Genesis, I think we might actually be doing more violence to Genesis at that point than we would if we were just sitting in, at it, you know, sitting in the audience, trying to take our place in the audience of that ancient culture and hear what God was saying to them. That seems to me to be strongly assuming that God would be speaking in a scientific way to them because that's what we expect. But I don't, I don't see that as respectful of that original audience and what God was trying to accomplish by communicating with them. And even if that did fix the whole uh, Adam and Eve thing, it, you still have to get by what some would call a global flood and then the Tower of Babel, right? I mean, because yep. we yep. pretty much know that civilizations and languages didn't, didn't quite evolve according to the Tower of Babel. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So once, like you say, once you solve, solve, in scare quotes, solve those problems, then there's other problems, right? Yeah. Uh, recently, Frank Turek was interviewed uh, by Capturing Christianity. And the first question that the viewers wanted to know, now, uh, Capturing Christianity's viewers tend to be young. So I understand why this is an important question to them. But the first question happened to be uh, being a Christian and evolution. And do, can you believe in evolution and still believe that the Bible is the word of God and so forth? And they talked for a little bit. And at one point of the interview, uh, Frank Turek pulled out the silver bullet against evolutionary creation. And uh, I'm going to share it with you now. And then we'll get uh, Dr. Venema to respond. And uh, this meeting was advertising the fact that the theory of neo-Darwinian evolution does not work. You can't so modify. Then, so, then, so for anyone who may not know what yeah. neo-Darwinian evolution is, that's like what the two mechanisms, right? Natural selection and random mutation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then or natural selection acting on random mutations. Sure. You right? can't that's how take you a genetic code and modify it and get new body plans. You can modify it randomly or mm -hmm. even maybe even intelligently from now till doomsday you'll never get a new body plan why why because dna itself does not give you a new body plan dna codes for proteins but to get a new body plan you need another kind of information known as epigenetic information epigenetic information is the structure to use an analogy where here we are sitting in a beautiful chapel um, the software that designed this chapel will never give you the chapel. The software will give you the instructions on how to build the chapel, but in order to have the chapel, you need physical materials. You need concrete, you need nails, you need wood, you need, you know, all those things. You need a foundation. Hmm. That, when it comes to biology, the analogy there with biology is in epigenetic information, the structure of the cell 
is, is sort of like the structure of this chapel. Whereas the software, the DNA would be, the analogous part there would be the, 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 the uh, software program that came up with the blueprint for this particular okay. chapel. So modifying the software will not get you a chapel. Modifying DNA will not get you a new body plan. Okay. And Dennis, what's your response to that? Uh, after watching the video, I was like, okay, who is this guy? I've never heard of Frank Turk before. So Googled around a bit. I'm like, okay, probably doesn't have training in biology, which is okay. A lot of apologists don't. Um, yeah, doesn't have training in biology. Seems to have read a bunch of Stephen Meyer, um, you know, well-known ID proponent. You know, Stephen Meyer doesn't have a biological background either. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> where, do you even, where do you even start, right? Um, one of the things I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Turek there, you know, okay, define to me what you mean by a new body plan. You know, do fish, whales, you know, pterosaurs, you know, and humans, do we have the same body plan or do we have different body plans? Because I really don't know what level of organization he's really speaking to. Is he saying like, you know, everything that's a bilateral is the same body plan? So he's arguing that, you know, you can't get, you know, you can't modify DNA to go from like, say, something not bilateral to something that's bilateral. You know, I just don't know exactly what his argument is actually saying. This idea though, okay, like if, if he would say, okay, humans and, you know, pterosaurs have different body plans. If he would say that, then I would say, okay, then we have pretty good evidence from the fossil record and from comparative genomic analysis that there's no natural barrier that separates those body plants. You can slowly traverse from one to the other through random mutation, natural selection, genetic drift, and the other mechanisms that are part of you know, common ancestry and part of evolution. So it really sort of depends on what level he's arguing at. Um, you know, would he say that humans and chimpanzees have the same body plan? Probably he would, although a lot of ID proponents, you know, recoil pretty strongly at the idea that, you know, humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor. Well, if human and chimp humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor and, you know, if we look at their genetics, look at the DNA comparisons between them, you know, by any measure you use, humans and chimpanzees have incredibly similar DNA, right, north of 95%, even with the most, you know, sort of lax measures of means of comparison. And there's no biological mechanism that would prevent, you know, traversing from a common ancestor to these two body, to these two organisms that we have in the present day, right? That's genetically trivial. That fits in exactly with the mutation rates that we see for organisms like that and the time scale that we see in the fossil record and by other measures for that divergence. So there's sort of no magic barrier between different species, different organisms, even, you know, different body plans. And in some cases, we have pretty good evidence for how body plans shifted over time. Like, say, for example, with whales, I talk about this um, quite a bit. I talk about it in the book. I talk about it on the Biologos um, articles about um, intro to evolution, evolution basics. Um, whales are tetrapods. They're four-limbed animals, just like any mammal should be but they happen only to be tetrapods, only have four limbs early on in their embryological development. 
So we would expect that from an evolutionary perspective that they, because they come from a lineage that has four limbs, but in their adult form, they have front flippers and they have a tail. But early on in their embryological development, they make four limb buds and hind limb buds, just like any good tetrapod, any good mammal should. So, you know, and then there's these genetic programs that are, you know, are starting that development. And then there's other programs that come along later and shut it down in the hind limb area only. So we have a, a pretty good handle on how evolution, how genetic changes modified that body plan to go from a four limbed terrestrial mammal to a two limbed, as it were, aquatic mammal. So yeah, I guess I would want to have that conversation with Dr. Turek and just ask the questions like, okay, what level are you talking about? And why are these lines of evidence, like, why do they not seem to be relevant to what you're talking about? So is it surprising to you, given your debate or your dialogue with Nathaniel Jensen, is it surprising to you that the young earth creationists seem to be ahead of the game on new body plans than, than the ID <laughs> guys? Because didn't he concede in that dialogue when you asked him a question that there was a common ancestor for both sheep and, and cattle on the ark? Yeah, one of the interesting things about young earth creationism biology is that you have this necessity of getting um, all of biodiversity shoved onto an ark, you know, 4,000 years ago. So obviously that doesn't work very well if you're talking about present day species. So what you have to have is these original created kinds, which are on the ark, and then you have this massive amount of macroevolution, for lack of a better word, you have this massive amount of speciation such that, you know, all artiodactyls, so sheep and deer and goats and pigs, you know, they're all coming from a common ancestor on the ark. You know, all the different apes um, or other primates have common ancestors, you know, except for humans, right? Humans don't share in that. But I mean, that's an or that's an amount of speciation. That's an amount of macroevolution that is so rapid. I mean, if you think about, you know, they think this is what, 4,300 years ago? And we've got millions of present day species and you have to have them coming you know, speciating from these representative ancestors that were on the ark, you know, that's, that's evolution on steroids, that's hyper evolution. So yeah, on the younger side of the equation, you see that, you know, more of a willingness to say that there's quite a bit of, of speciation going on, macroevolution going on. On the other hand, with the old earth creationist uh, side of the equation, and most ID folks tend to be old earth creationists, not all, but most, they're more comfortable, you know, they don't have that sort of pressure to have a huge amount of speciation going on because they've got all the time in the world, as it were. They don't have to shove it all, all this biodiversity onto an arc and have it uh, diversify from that rapid starting point. So yeah, you end up with this kind of ironic situation where you've got young earth hyper-evolutionists and you've got old earth very much anti-evolutionists. Although, you know, folks like Ken Ham or Nathaniel Jensen probably wouldn't like having that label, but that's what it is. If you look at it, it's, it's just massive amounts of evolution happening in an incredibly short period of time. Congratulations, doctor. This is our last question, and we wouldn't be fair and balanced if I didn't turn the tables on you. So this is your favorite question or one <laughs> of the favorite questions that you like to ask opponents uh, in debate. You asked Georgia and you asked Nathaniel and that is falsification theory. Is there anything that could convince you that you are wrong? And like I said to Georgia back in the time, in, in that dialogue that was at Letourneau University, I think in 2011, memory serves, but anyway, um, a scientist is always open to new evidence. 
right? That's the, that's the nuts and bolts of science. So if there is scientific evidence that comes to light that suddenly supports the idea that say we come from just two people or that, you know, humans were separately created apart from other organisms, you know, apart from common ancestry, there isn't a scientist on the planet that wouldn't eagerly look at that evidence to see if it had better explanatory power than the system that we have in place, the, the ideas that we have in place right now. So yeah, any scientist, I would say, would be quite happy to change their views in light of evidence, right? Evidence is what matters to a scientist. If you were a specimen that came alive in the movie, The Night at the Museum, what would you be and why? <laughs> I need to pull my kids in on this one. Um, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know what specimens are on offer, but I suppose it's the usual sort of dinosaur specimens you would see. Um, pterodactyls are pretty cool. So if one of those is there. Um, one of the things that is really cool about um, tetrapods in general is just the amazing diversity of forms that they take over the course of evolution. And pterodactyls happen to just be, or pterosaurs, I guess I should say, just happens to be one of those ones that have always fascinated me even since I was a kid. So maybe one of those, then I could fly. Who doesn't like flying, right? Awesome. When my oldest was about four and in preschool, one of her teacher teachers in preschool with Miss Tara. And one day Amy said to me, Tara could be short for pterodactyl, right? I mean, it, it could <laughs> be, right? Of course, she didn't know about spelling and the letter P, the silent P in pterodactyl, but it's it. cute. <laughs> All right. Um, it is often said that over 99% of the species that have ever lived have gone extinct. Setting aside ecosystems and tropic cascades, if you could become, bring back one extinct prehistoric species back, because you'd really like to see it in action, what would it be? Oh man, You're, that's, I guess all of them isn't an answer, right? <laughs> um, so many fascinating critters that could come back. Um, something near the amphibian tetrapod transition would probably be pretty cool to look at. So something like a Tiktaalik, but I mean, that's a good Canadian example too. And people are probably familiar with that, but anything from that sort of era where that group is radiating and then that's, you know, one of that grouping is, is ancestral to other tetrapods. That would be pretty cool to see.